in a world dominated by huge insects, where insect magic is toxic to human beings. One teenage girl must pay the ultimate price. The village of Hoshifuri sacrifices a 15-year-old girl every 200 years to keep the giant Koju from infecting the rest of the population. When she turned 15, Reiko learned she was to be the next sacrifice. But she had other plans. Aided by her golden rhinoceros beetle, Kiniro, and protected by a special bracelet that allows her to be exposed to the deadly Levisense Miasma, Reiko sets out to confront the Koju Menace. Reiko must gather all her strength and courage to take on hordes of enemies. Will she fall in service to her village? Or will she stand triumphant as she takes on the Koju God? Only you can help determine her fate in Mushihime-sama. The core cast. Welcome to Shoot the Corecast Focus Shot. This will be our recording for last year's Focus Shot game, the game that we focused on through all of 2022, and that is none other than Caves Mushi Hime Sama. And of course, you've got me, Game Boy Guru or a, a mm -hmm. Metal Fro, and my co pilot, Addicted. Yep, and for the rest of this episode, I'll be replaced by ChatGPT. <laughs> and we are joined by none other than Mark MSX from The Electric Underground. Welcome to the podcast. Hello! <laughs> hey. hey, how's it going? <laughs> He's using so a schmuck slam voice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, The Focus Shot. How about that? Featuring special <laughs> guest, go. the Electric Underground. So this is going to be a bit more informal than what we normally do, but uh, yeah, we're just going to talk some Mushihime-sama and um, you know, take a look at the game, talk about the mechanics, and just sort of break it down and uh, you know, figure out. What this game, you know, what makes this game tick? You cannot get enough Mushimi-sama in your life. And I love talking about this game, so I'm super excited. Very cool. And I've been practicing and playing it a lot, so this is very topical and timely for me. I'm very fresh. Ah, very yes. good. Well, I'm less fresh, but um, that's mostly because technically this is Mark two of the recording. Yes, indeed. Um... Because the first time we tried to do this, uh, we didn't get all the audio. And Sabotage. So, uh, 
sabotage from the other podcasts. They're yeah. jealous. What's that? The audio was sabotaged by the other podcasts that are jealous. Oh, yes. <laughs> Actually, well, to come clean audience out there, it's my fault. <laughs> I'm putting oh, them through another okay. recording because I just love Mushy so much. <laughs> uh, well, that works. You could say that audio recording was a bug that hit a windshield. Mm-hmm. You could say it's a koju. Is that the, the bug from Machine Zama? Yes, the koju. The koju, the the koju sabotaged our last episode. Because I got a little fresh talking yeah. about them and making fun of them, and that's what happened. Yeah, they were pretty salty about <laughs> uh, about Reiko flying into the forest and taking them all out, so... That's how it works. But the second time is always the best time. Am I right? (laughs) Well, let's hope so. So, uh, let's just jump right in. Uh, Mushihime-sama. First of all, what what were your first impressions of this game when you initially played it? So, I remember the first time I played Mushihime-sama really clearly... Because I was into the cave era and I was playing all the cave games that are supported on Final Burn Neo or Final Burn Alpha at the time. So that's Dodonpachi, Esperade, um, I think Ketsui was on there as well, DOJ. So all of those early CVK uh, Dodon, um, cave games. And I thought they were amazing and awesome. And then I learned about the Steam port of Mushihimi-sama. And I saw the game, and I remember looking at the visuals and being like, holy crap, this game looks incredible. And so I remember the very first time I played the game being really struck with its visual presentation and its style and the coloring and the sprite art. And it kind of made me think, like, why didn't they keep making sprite art games? I mean, look how amazing the pixel art of this game is. Why did they stop? So... I was very, very impressed the very first time I saw this game. It was quite an experience for me. Huh. What about you, Addicted? When did you first first encounter Mushihime-sama? I encountered it as probably a little bit after one with Ketsuya. I did not start with anything that was not a writer. I don't really have any grand story. I just... I played a little bit of Dodon Potch when you know, on the Saturn and played some Ketsui when we first started here. But my majority of the stuff I had was not Damaku or uh, or cave, even Cave Kawaii. I was l- relatively new to this game, and I think I went with its sequel, <coughs> Futari, and played a heck of a lot of that and then got interested in trying this out. And it's really interesting to see the dynamic or the exchange between these two because we have Futari is like a muscle car. It's very well polished. It's very sleek. It's very futuristic. And then we have Mushi, which is also a muscle car, but it's very raw and rough around the edges. It's something that feels... It feels very raw and rough, and <clears throat> that gives it its own unique shape and personality. It, it's 
flawed in some places, sure, but definitely one that I keep coming back to now that I've played it. I don't have a, didn't have a chance to try it like many people did at the PS2 release. The one where it was, uh, you know, hire six people to rotate your mon- your CRT, and get you know everybody gets a hernia party, or uh, in order to get it to see properly. Oh yeah. But I, I'm thankful that I, <laughs> yeah, Mark's been there with the rotating. Uh, the I'm thankful that the version that I tried was the HD version and. And didn't have to suffer through the PS2 port. Yeah, you know what's funny about the Mishimisama PS2 rotation is it only rotates one direction. It only rotates, I can't remember, to the left or the right. I'm not good at that. But it only rotates the one direction that most shmup ports rotate. And I remember, so I got this giant 32-inch Sony Trinitron, and it was a huge pain. And then I got it on its side, and then I put all this stuff on top of it, all my recording equipment, computers, shelves. And then I plug the PS2 in. I put in Dodonpachi, DOJ, and Mushimisama. And the TV is rotated the wrong direction, so the game is upside down. I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. And then I like, go through the options. Like, come on, please, Mushi, no. It won't turn the other way. So then I had to undo everything. It literally took me a day. Speaking of rotations, it took me a day to rotate the stupid TV to fit with the rotation of the PS2 port. So that's the real reason why I hate it. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think most most stuff during the PS1 and PS2 era, when you had to when you had to rotate for a game like that, most yeah. of it was 90 degrees counterclockwise. Yeah, that so was a mistake. you probably mo- a bar too. All the games were like, bro, we don't rotate this way. You got to flip yeah. the TV. <sighs> I thought you were going to tell me that's how you learned how to play games like Spider-Man. <laughs> yes. So what I did was, obviously, I got a rope, and then I hung my feet on the rope and just played upside down. <laughs> you know, I did try... The ah, one thing I ah, did try ah. to do that I nice. thought would be kind of entertaining is I took some horizontal shmups, and I tried to play them vertically, you know, but but still, you know... So it's like... I think it was a Kai Katana. I put a Kai Katana and had it face upward and tried to play it that way. And then I had to turn the arcade stick. I had to rotate my literal arcade stick in my lap so that the controls would be turned as well. Uh, it didn't work super well, but it was kind of funny. Oh, nice. Yeah, that'd be an interesting experiment. See, I think like you, Addicted, I came to Mushi Futari first because um, I... I think it was 2018, I bought the Mushi Futari uh, limited edition or whatever that came with the 2C soundtrack arrangement. And of course that had the Futari arranged soundtrack and the Mushi arranged soundtrack. Um, And then it was sometime not too long after that um, that I finally got the... um, Nice. The free McBoot setup going on my PS2. And so so then I messed around with the original Mushi on PS2 a little bit. Um, of course, I didn't have a way to rotate my TV. So, you know, I was just kind of playing regular or whatever. But yeah, I, I definitely came to Futari first. And going from the excellence of M2's Futari port on the 360 to the less than excellent 
uh, PS2 port of of the original Mushi was not a great first impression. Oh, I bet. That's so weird. Both of you started with Futari? That is crazy. I I actually played Mushi way before Futari, like long, long before Futari. So that's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think most I think both of us were kinda late to the party as far as Damaku games. I mean, you know, I, I imported Strikers 1945-2 on the Saturn. That was my first import way back in the late 90s. And at some point after that, I imported Dompach. Nice. But, you know, that... Port sucks. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. early enough to where it's kind of hard to... It's kind of hard to call that a full-fledged Danmaku game. At least until you get about halfway yeah. through the game and things start to get serious. So, yeah, I was really late to that. In fact... Probably the first real Danmaku game that I ever actually played was uh, Bluish Res- Resurrection. Oh, PC. yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and that impressed me. And and then, of course, later, um, Futari and a little bit with the original Mushi and then Crimson Clover, which, which you introduced yes, me to. Yes, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yep. Game Boy Guru won some <laughs> type of crazy contest that I was coming up with. I can't remember what it, what I was making people do. I can't. Everyone, I was when I first started the channel. I did these weird concept contests that I thought were so funny. Like for example, I had a copy of Ketsui. In order to win the copy of Ketsui, I posted a picture of a jar of jelly beans. And then said, all right, person who figures out how many jelly beans are in this jar, the closest to it, wins. And Eaglet, I don't know if you all know huh. who Eaglet is. He's, he's a really good Grega player. That guy was crazy close. And I was like, how did you figure this out? And he's showing me all these r- algorithms and shit he was coming up with to come up with that. <laughs> but yeah, so did I make you guess for jelly beans or how did I give, what was the contest? Do you remember? I don't. I don't think it was a contest. I think at that point maybe you were just trying to like proselytize Crimson Clover to that people. That makes sense. <laughs> and so I want to say you just gave me the code, like you gifted it yeah, to me. Yeah, I could or see something. that. I, re- I remember uh, very clearly that day because I went out and I bought like fifteen copies of. Crimson Clover on Steam. I don't know how I did it. I, I don't think you can do that anymore. But I bought all these copies of Crimson Clover on Steam, each for about $2 a piece. And then I went to Albertsons and bought 30 pieces of chicken. And I remember thinking, okay, I just bought 30 pieces of chicken and I bought 30, around 20 or 30 oh, copies sh- of Crimson Clover. And the chicken was way more expensive. <laughs> 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 I thought that was pretty funny. So... Yes, I, nice. I probably was literally at one point just sending it to people like, please take. Please I have take to say, I think you are responsible for at least 40% of all of the sales of that game. Maybe more. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I was really I was really going hard on the Crimson Clover when I first started the channel. And when you said that you started to do all these weird contests, yeah. these really hard contests, I almost was ready to call you Jigsaw. Oh yeah, and if you lose, the the, the consequences are dire. Yeah. Your your finger is cut off. <laughs> you can no longer shmup. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I want to say you probably <laughs> gifted me that copy of Crimson Clover not too long after uh, I was on your podcast early on. Yes, and for people who don't know, Game Boy Guru is one of the OG guests of my channel and podcast. Either the the third or fourth, I think the fourth. It was episode five. Yes, but the first episode was just me. So you were the fourth guest oh, right. because I had uh, JB... His name's confusing, but he disappeared anyway. So he disappeared, and then I had... Who was number two? Oh, my God. I should remember number... I know number three was um, Shmup Master, and you were number four. Oh, yes. Oh, number two was JB. Yeah, and JB disappeared, never to be heard of her. I think that person you're forgetting is a cleaning lady who interrupted you, and then you offered her a copy of Crimson Clover. Oh, she was much, much later. <laughs> much later. <laughs> she was in the Jamers episode. I remember that super well. <laughs> so, Mushihimi-sama. Uh, I really want to talk about... So, let's talk about, for example, people who've played other bullet hells, who've played Futari. What would you say is the most defining feature of Mushihimi-sama that really stands out to you? Like, when you were coming from Futari, and then you played Mushi, you're like, what is here with this game? Um, you know, the the thing that I didn't pick up on initially, um, but something that stood out to me definitely when I started to play it a bit more seriously is the fact that in the original Mushi, you've got the three different shot types. Whereas yeah. in Futari, they sort of do a, a hybrid thing where... Your, if I remember correctly, your standard shot is kind of like the wide shot, and your focus shot is more like the S shot. Yeah, yeah. In the original that's right. and and stuff like that. Yeah, they they merge. Okay, they so merge the I'm shot types together. That yeah. Then. Yeah, but yeah, that that's the interesting thing to me that that kind of stood out is is that the original in some ways gives you a bit more flexibility there. Now, obviously. The second game has both Reiko and Palm, so there's they kind of mix it up that way, and they, they play different. Um, but yeah, in the original, with Reiko, you've got the three different shot types, and of course, each of them has different levels of power, and you get different, uh, different speeds yeah. with each of those shot types. So it definitely changes up the way that you approach the game. Um, you know, in more ways than one, really. What was your first impression, Addicted? My first impression was this game is, moves a lot faster. I would say that the difficulty curve on Futari is a lot more gradual than the difficulty curve. That's true. Yeah. And the bullets at first appeared really fast, but then... After a, after a while, they became second nature, and after playing Gunvane, I feel like I'm in the Matrix. I'm just sitting there watching stuff fly by while I'm moving around. But it, it's <coughs> it's definitely dip more harder to deal with at first. It, it beguiles you with or beguiles you with its uh, cute aesthetics before you are viciously. Uh, <laughs> Harmed, especially if you choose some of the harder difficulties. The uh, <coughs> Venus flytraps, those things can shoot off. Once you destroy the main part of that, those little bugs in there, they can really shoot off some bullets very quickly. And then the the banana bushes or banana trees, whatever, 
<laughs> called in the second stage, those things can really get you too the first couple times you play the game. Yeah, they can shoot pretty low on screen. Oh, yeah, the nano bushes. Yep. <laughs> and I mean, it's definitely a different play style area on there. The one thing that really got me going was the different weapon types, as Guru mentioned. I was trying a different all these different weapon types. I was like, wait a second, I'm playing for survival, not for score. So I went with the blue weapon. Who can't remember which letter that was, but. S. <laughs> I feel like we were, we're on Sesame Street here. S. The letter S. S. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> S stands for speed. <laughs> S is for shmup. Uh, so that worked out really well for for survival. As I was tra- typically, you want to have a wide shot, right? Within Damaka, so that way you can hit as much as possible with your popcorn. But having a, a main focus shot where it's just shot forward but is a little bit more powerful made a lot a huge difference for at least trying to get through the original mode in survival. Especially when you're trying to keep all your lives in order to get the um get bonus, as they would say, or your max score. Since so much of that comes from not dying at the end. I think you get what, five mil per life? Yeah, something like that. I can't remember how much, but it's a lot when you cash out at the end. Another thing that's really nice about S-Type 2 is the movement speed because Mushimi-sama, this is speaking, going along with this question, my first impression of Mushimi-sama when I played it, coming from Dodonpachi, Ketsui, you know, those older cave games, was like, what is going on with the speed transitions in this game? Because they are probably the most strange in all of Caves Shmups because your your unfocused movement, so when you're holding your auto-fire, is pretty fast, pretty decent with all the ships. It's a little slow with wide, but it's still pretty decent. But then when you go into focused fire, you barely move with the other sh- uh, shot type. So with uh, W, it is like the slowest concentrated fire speed I've ever seen. It's so slow. And then M2, it's also pretty slow. And then S is kind of normal, but since the other ones are really slow, S feels really fast. So I remember that being really odd. And also, the, the time it takes to transition from focused fire to concentrated fire in this game is like really long. And so you can get these really funny movements with your ship where you're going between the two types and you just do this like slingshot movement. You're like, <laughs> it's, I remember that being very jarring the first time I ever played Mushimisama. What's funny now is I kind of like it now because it's so characteristic and whenever you're playing you're like, oh, I'm playing Mushi now. It's so characteristic of this game. Fatari, they kind of made it more like the other cave games in that way, but this game, the the movement speed is, with the shot type is very unique. Yeah, and that was, now that you mentioned that, I was thinking that it definitely spot, or I was, it's definitely different from Ketsui, right? The game that came before this, where it was all militaristic and uh, Yojo Bros, <laughs> and this marked a very important turning point for Cave with the uh, start of the fantasy element of the Kawaii that they <clears throat> look to be inspired a lot from um, Nazuka Valley of the Wind, <clears throat> was a huge inspiration, and then yes. Dragon Spirit was another one. There, it, it's <clears throat> definitely interesting. To, Outlook to I mean, if you think if someone came up to you and said, "All right, here's what we're going to do: we're going to do bugs 
and, it's, and you're sitting there playing Gradius 2 or Gradius 3, you probably think they were pretty crazy. So, I mean, it, it turned into this turning point for militaristic shooters into fantasy-type shooter. How much... Was there anything else that came before this that was really fantasy? Uh, maybe Escaluda had kind of a fantasy cyberpunk... Not not cyber, steampunk, kind of a fantasy steampunk sort of vibe to it. But what's really funny is, now that you mention that, I never really sat and thought about it, but I feel like if you took the concept of Mushihimi-sama, okay, we're going to make a shmup with bugs, and you brought it to like a Western studio... I feel like the the direction they would go with it is kind of like creepy, scary, like aliens or something like that, like more visceral and gross. But what they were like, cute bugs. Let's do. The, so it's not only that they're bugs, but they're like adorable, cute little bugs. I, it is such a unique take on the, as an art style. And it's so characteristic. Whenever you see a shmup with any kind of bug that's cute in it, you're like, oh, that's Mushi inspired instantly. It's so it stands out so much, and in fact, my children, their favorite shmup by far is Mushimisama because they love the bugs and they love the purple bullets and they love the little forests and the music. I mean, <laughs> my son will sit and watch Jamer's videos <laughs> playing Mushimisama because he loves the the bugs and the forest and the bullets. So it's and no other shmups does he feel that way about. So something about its art style really, I think, is really unique, and I could see it really catching on with a lot of people. I'm. Now that you mention that, going from east to west, huh. or sorry, yeah, east to west, um, I wonder, could you imagine people crowding around in the marquee at the top, it says Bug Princess, I wonder how all that could have gone. <laughs> yeah, that's an awful title. Or if they were to translate, I mean, would they have given it the Kirby effect? Would the bugs just have angry frowns? <laughs> bugs can't be happy and go lucky anymore. We have to make this into a manly game. Bugs must have friends. They have to be. There must be edgy bugs. Edgy bugs. <laughs> oh, they're like um. They did that with <coughs> Advanced Wars when they brought Advanced Wars from Japan. Well, you know they're trying to make it more Western, and it went from like uh, this cute little yeah, kind of like a cute little strategy game. And then they did Days of Ruin. Everyone's all like emo and <laughs> everything. So they'd be emo bugs. Uh, emo bugs. They have like little swoopy hair and guitars. <laughs> wow. You know, it's interesting that you say that, Mark, because I think the only insect-based um, <coughs> shooting game I can think of with a cute aesthetic prior to Mushihime-sama was Insector X. And it was only the original arcade version that had this really cutesy mm-hmm. kind of look to it. Because when that got ported later to the Mega Drive and the Genesis, they kind of retooled it, and it was more serious and had a much more, um, a much more sort of sci-fi kind of aesthetic Metal. to it. But Metal you know, you're, I think you're, I think you're right that as far as the, you know, the bug or insect kind of uh, look would have been a bit more maybe gross or or what have you because if you think about it you know you also have examples like Apidia on the Amiga that was a bit more like that or even even another Japanese developed game which was um, uh, Biohazard Battle on the Genesis yeah yeah you know, that had a much more kind of um, 
<laughs> I don't want to say gross, but you know, a much like more body horror, visceral, body horror like you said, kind of yeah. look to it. You know what would be a great Western developed game that would fit into STGs? Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> yeah, those wouldn't be cute bugs. That's scary bugs. <laughs> Rick, Rick, you, uh, Rick Moranis fighting on the back <laughs> of an ant. Let's make this going. <laughs> yeah, that's a good show. <laughs> yeah. Oh. But scary bugs. Go on what, what we're saying, yeah. No, I, I was just thinking either that or someone can finally finish up that never-ending story shmup. Huh. You know what's also interesting about Cave, and I was thinking about this, and Mishima-san was another good example of that, is they would do these shmups that were super clearly inspired by, like, bigger, more popular IPs, right. <laughs> like the the shows you mentioned, or I, I felt like Esperate is in, very heavily inspired by Akira. And I always wonder, like... If Cave had the license, would they just straight up make these like li- like licensed shmups? Like they'd make Akira the shmup, or if they had the license, would they make uh, Nasica the shmup? That would be pretty cool. You know, I, I, I was thinking that too, but then I thought about LGN. I think it's probably a good thing they didn't have the license. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, what would have been uh, what would have been their uh, their inspiration for Guange? <laughs> Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Akira Kurosawa movies, I guess. <laughs> Seven Samurai. Ninja Scroll. Ninja Scroll. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ninja Scroll, of course. <laughs> Ninja Scroll. That's a fun game from. at some point. Maybe I should make a video about that. Like, what anime corresponds with each cave game and see if we can find, like, the closest matches? Right. Well, with Mushi, it's very clear. Yeah. Yeah, Mushi, it's Nausicaa, and uh, Dragon Spirit is influences for certain. But, you know, Mushi, to me, it feels like... I think you're right, though, Mark, when you kind of mentioned earlier that, you know, it's such a, it's such a good-looking game, and, you know, why did they stop making pixel games and that? But I think you're right, because if you think about Cave... Uh, games from the start and then kind of where they where they progress to you know you think about Gen 1 Cave Hardware and you had several games on that uh, you know Dompatch through Gawange and yeah look at the progression of those games through Gawange and, and that game looks pretty good for being on kind of their first generation board um, yeah. and, and then, of course, they did Pro Gear on the CPS2, and then they did Daiojo and Ketsui and Escaluda on the PGM. Yes. But as soon as you get to the SH3 board, you realize, uh, which of course was, well, the first game on that was Mushi in 2004, you realize what a jump that was. Because Espagaluda yeah. is a good game. It almost feels game. like... Going between, you know how like there's different console generations. You go from the Genesis to the Saturn. It almost feels like that. You're like, okay, those were all on like the old Super Nintendo. Now Mushi's on the Saturn or whatever it would be, the Xbox or whatever. Right. It feels like a jump in a console generation almost. Yeah, I mean, Esp Galuda is a good-looking game on the PGM, and I, as much as I love Ketsui, I, I think Esp Galuda is probably the best-looking of their games on PGM. But, yeah, Mushi, I think, is a whole nother level. And it really, 
it really shows immediately the power of the hardware. And of course, they were able to get a lot more out of it as they went along. But right out of the gate, they they impressed with Mushi. And it's it's crazy to think that that game came out in 2004 and they were still on some iteration of the SH3 board, even though the later stuff was... Um, was uh, SH3B, um, but you know, Sidio Joe came out all the way in 2012, so they ran with this hardware for quite a long time. Oh it, yeah, yeah, and that's a great point you brought up about the PGM because this is a little bit of a hardware trivia I learned a bit ago, which is that one thing that gives the PGM and like DOJ and all those PGM games that they're one of their distinctive looks is I guess it has sort of like a more muted, darker color palette. Yep. And it's really funny going from like DOJ and Ketsui into Mushi because this game's colors are so bright and vivid and saturated. It just it's it's like a totally different uh visual style and it really pops out and that's why and that probably lended to the feeling of like whoa this is crazy because of how bright and beautiful the colors are and how well the color work in the game is like Mm. this is a game i always kind of look at for like really good color work whenever i'm trying to come up with ideas for house of bullets i'm like well what did mushi do (laughs) i often do that like oh well mushi did this with the background and this with the color palettes it's so well done visually it's probably one of my favorite cave games visually just point blank and it is funny to think that objectively like if you take mushi from 2004 and you take sdoj from 2012 it i think mushi can have a real argument against like which one actually looks better because huh. <laughs> it's not clear which one looks better i wouldn't say i have to give points to sdoj though for just going cr- absolutely anime crazy <laughs> i mean some of those it definitely does <laughs> Some yeah. of those bosses out there, I mean, we discussed this last time, but some of those bosses out there look like they came out of the final scene of the movie Spaceballs, the Statue of Liberty, <laughs> just it's attacking yeah. people for their air supply. But it, yeah, it's uh, it, it's balanced a little bit better than going full uh, anime Yeah, I, I would say that Mushi Misama has more, like, for example, between Mushi Misama and Futari, I would say when you look at them art-wise, art like the visuals, the arts, the presentation, like Mushi Misama, the original one, I think has a much more cohesive design. You look at Futari, like, okay, now it's dinosaurs, and then it's feudal Japan, and wolf spiders, and now we're in the middle of the sky, and it's... Then there's like a lady who's the final boss. Oh, what is she? Like, it's so, uh, it's cool, but it feels a lot more kind of anime and that cartoon and that sort of thing. Whereas Mushi feels a little bit more, I don't know, grounded, I guess. A little bit more like this makes sense. <laughs> like everything's a bug, you're fighting bugs. This, this makes sense. The final boss is a giant beetle and you're riding on a beetle. I, I, I really like, I think it's a little bit better personally. Yeah, it, it definitely has, as you said, a much more cohesive look and feel to it. Stylistically, it makes a lot more sense than Futari. Um, and I I think it's better for it because when you're playing through the game and 
you're you're going from stage to stage, even though each each stage has its own aesthetic and its own look and stuff, it all still makes sense within the context of that world yeah. and the sort of narrative that the game is telling about this whole situation with Reiko going into the forest to confront the insects to try and save the humans of her village and all of that stuff. It definitely makes a lot more sense and is much more visually, what's the word I'm looking for? Cohesive. Yeah, I mean, you said cohesive, but yeah, it, it makes much more sense in context when you put it all together than... Uh, Ludo narrative dissonance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I promised I'd find the way to say that in a video. There you go. And not really. <laughs> That's not actually what it means, but it's just funny to say that. Yeah, but I, I get what you're saying. I mean, it definitely... If, if you contextualize it all, it it makes a lot more sense and it's much more together uh, than than Futari. Futari is feels a lot more like okay, we did the bug thing. Now let's just yeah. go crazy. Squid. <laughs> yeah, you just like all the cre- like I then when they're sitting down planning out. I like Futari. I'm not saying, but it feels like when they're sitting down and uh, and planning Futari, it's like okay, we that's exactly it. They're like okay, we did bugs, guys. What do we got? Jellyfish, all right. Dinosaurs, that sounds cool. Wolf spider, spiders. Okay, do we do arachnids? Okay, arachnid, wolf spider, giant lady on a house, giant lady on a house. Like they're just, <laughs> it's like what? They're just throwing in all these different ideas in there. One thing I wanted to say about Mushimusama before I forget it, because it's kind of a weird uh, aspect of the game. I never really think about it, and we never really discuss this with shmups, but. Well, for whatever reason, whenever I boot Mushihimi-sama and I look at the title screen, you know, like the, the startup screen and it's just like that tree and then the, the clouds and everything, I just get the more, most warm, fuzzy feeling every time I boot up Mushihimi-sama. Something about it, it's like soothing and comforting. And no other game title screen does this to me. But Mushihimi-sama, when it pops up on screen, I'm just like, Ah, isn't that nice? Isn't this beautiful? Like sometimes I'll sit and just look at the title screen for a bit. And that's why in my videos, you'll often see my videos, I'm using Mushihimi-sama backgrounds when they don't even make sense. I'm like, well, I love, I'll just put it in there because it's Mushi. Like something about the background art of this game. And the if you look at it, like the clouds will go through these little patterns and the patterns will repeat, but not exactly the same way. I don't know. It's I really love the visual presentation of the game. I think it's one of Cave's best, and I love the title screen. Huh. Interesting. And it's also good on the port, not just only in the arcade game, but if you pull up the port, that like the main menu of the port, isn't that so much more nice and soothing than like SDOJs or DFKs, right? Those feel a little bit more like, oh, you're I don't they're okay, they're good and everything, but they don't have that sort of artistic touch to them that the 360 cave port has in terms of that the menu uh i think it's one of cave's best i think they were just really on top of it with this game yeah it's interesting to think about but i mean yeah certainly it it definitely has a um a much more inviting kind of look to it Um, i mean i think I think their their earliest stuff like Dome Patch and Dome Patch 
are equally as, um, I don't know, visually interesting, I guess you could say. Um, because, of course, at that time, they, they had to be with the attract Yeah, mode. the attract screens, yeah. But past those two, I'm not sure that you could say that about most of the cave attract screens. Maybe pro gear well, just, b- because of its Just do a little look. mental exercise and say, okay, name the attract screens. Which ones can you remember? Which ones can you visualize in your head? What is Ketsui's attract screen? What is yeah. Gwangae's attract screen? You know, like, can you... It'd be interesting to play that game just purely in your mind. Can you remember what their attract screens are and what they look like? Mushi's instantly comes to me. It's the tree with the wisps and the clouds, and it's green and white and purple. Really nice color selection. It says the cave's website on the front of it. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah, I never thought about it, but I think you're right. I mean, you know, I spent a bunch of time with Ketsui, and I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what the what the title <laughs> yeah. screen looks like. Um, but yeah, I mean. That's, I've never thought about it that way, but you're you're right. Well, what's interesting too is I would love to know in terms of popularity, in terms of like arcade PCB sold, how popular was Mushihime-sama? Because I always get the feeling that it was really popular and that's why they port it all the time to the PS2, 360, Steam, Switch... Are we missing one? <laughs> like, how many ports of Mushi are there? And I think I'm assuming that's because the game's popular and like it has this crossover appeal that maybe some of the other cave shmups don't have. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about because I, I really think Mushi, and I know we discussed this the last time we spoke, but Mushi, in a lot of ways, feels like a sea change for cave because. I think people on the surface might see Cave's early work as military shooters, but there's yeah. still a fair bit of a bit of variety in their first batch of games. Because obviously you have Dome Patch and the Dome Patch with the bees. military theme, but then you've got there's Esparade. also like bees in there and stuff. Yeah, well, right. But then you've got Esparade, which is more kind of, uh, you know, uh, futuristic fantasy sci-fi but very grounded yeah. in reality you've got dangan feverin which is very old school space shooter kind of thing but wacky yeah and then you've got gwange which is sort of like feudal japan uh you know mixed with magic and and stuff like that um you know going full ninpo or whatever and then of course pro gear kind of goes back to the well with the military shooter thing, but with a different aesthetic and a whole different... Like cuter. Yeah, very, very like sort cute of cute. cute military planes. <laughs> right. Cute so little adorable tanks. So they really do, uh, you know, have a, a good bit of variety in their early games. And then, of course, they went back to the well again with, with, with DOJ and with Ketsui. But then... Starting with Espgaluda, you started to see a change in their in their approach. Espgaluda, you know, is like fantasy but steampunk, and so it was yeah a little bit of a mix. But Mushi is a really stark change for um, <clears throat> for their design aesthetic because everything after Mushi 
has a much more anime style and uh, much brighter color palettes, much yes. uh, much more emphasis on a cute aesthetic. Because you go from from Mushi to Ibarra, Escaluda Two, Pink Sweets, um, Fatari, of course, uh, Muchi Muchi Pork, Death Smiles, and then even even uh, Difficots and uh, and uh, SDOJ take on much more of that sort of anime kind of look and feel. Yeah, absolutely. Very- You're fighting giant girl robots <laughs> now rather than, you know, crazy, monstrous enemy military planes. They're like literally giant girl robots. Right. And and aside from the, the colorful but understated, perhaps, look of, of Dome Patch and the Dome Patch or the or the slightly muted palette that uh, that was in DOJ. You know, the later games are so bright and and so bold and and very distinctive in that sense. So yeah, Mushi was definitely a was definitely signaled a major change in the overall art style and direction that Cave would take uh, going forward. Yeah, and another good uh, shift that you can observe from Mushi Himisama onward is the way they do the bullets in the game. So I, I always think of it like, yeah, Mushi's that dividing point where Mushi brings in, I don't know how to describe it, like the Mushi bullet patterns. So, For example, one of them is that they'll get like really oversized bullets, but their hitboxes really aren't all that big. So you're starting to slide through enemy patterns. And you could always do that in the other cave games. But Mushi feels like the first one, it's like the dev's like, yeah, no, actually just go ahead and do that. Like it's it's like, it's like so clear that the dev's like, no, you you can actually just slide through this pattern. Here you go. There's There's tons of patterns like that in the boss fights. And then also, I feel like Cave really fell in love with bullet cancels beginning with Mushimi, Mushimi-sama. You can do bullet cancels in other cave games, but it's like in Mushi, just notice like you are canceling bullets almost every five seconds in the game. And after that point, all the other games have have lots of bullet cancels. It, it becomes like a real staple of Cave's level design and game design. And I think Mushi's like that turning point where they discovered bullet cancels are awesome, guys. Let's just do them a yeah. lot. And that's interesting because Espagluda had some of that, but it was it was part and parcel with the Kakusei mechanic. Yeah. Whereas with Mushi, it's just baked right in to uh, certain situations, such as the um, I can't remember what they're called, but those large enemies on the first stage that shoot out the big uh, waves yeah. at you. They're like centipede things. Yeah. Or the or the yeah the the long bugs in stage four that kind of oh like the water centipede yeah. things or yes the the, dra- the the dragonflies or no they're not dragonflies whatever they are but that pat that's great you bring that up because that pattern is like one of the most referenced sections in all of shmups like it's in everything like there's so many shmups you play these days that have like a crimson clover has it there's so many games that have 
the, the dragonfly or water centipede section from Mushi in it. Like, that's such an iconic section in Shmups. It's in Don Maku Unlimited 3. It's a lot of Shmups have it now. It's like, oh, that's the Mushi stage, uh, stage 4 uh, end section. Well, even Cave, uh, even Cave referenced themselves when they did it again in Futari. Oh, yeah, on the back of the, the bugs. That's such a fun section, too. Yep. Um, the grasshoppers and stuff. And and so, yeah, it's it's interesting that, that the bullet cancels became more of a more of a focus, um, but not it, tied to a mechanic. You know, it was just yeah. something that was part of the stage. And it goes to it really goes to show the the cleverness of their level design because the way that they the way that they did that was they designed it so that these enemies were very specifically placed in these locations so that you mm-hmm. could have this screen full of bullets and then if you if you were in the right spot and you destroyed the enemy and you canceled all these bullets it's such a satisfying feeling and i think they understood that during that design phase so that they could kind of play on that so that once you realize you can do that then that just becomes one more hook that draws you into the game. Yeah. And what's really clever about the way they do the bullet-canceling enemies in Mushimisama is that the way they're... Like the centipedes in Stage 1, or whatever they are, centipede, whatever it is in Stage 1, is a great example of that. Because these enemy types, they usually don't target you super directly, at least not all of them. Instead, what they do is they just sort of passively spew bullets on the screen and so what the game's basically saying is you want lots to bullet a lot of bullets to cancel here's the guy you can cancel you can either let him live so that when you get to cancel it's really really big or you can kill him immediately but your cancel is going to be smaller so it has that fun push and pull between scoring let him live but it's more dangerous versus survival okay kill him quick but now you don't have as much of a cancel and man cave used that a lot in the rest of their games going forward like that was a real staple of their level design yeah one one thing i forgot to double check on this but um was mushihime sama the first cave game with a visible hitbox that's a great question i think so because it's not in escaluda it's yeah, not in esparade i didn't think it's not it was in Ketsui. escaluda no it wasn't Okay, so yeah, then Mushi is probably the first cave game with a with a visible, obvious hitbox, and I'm wondering, were they the first to do it, or I know was for it sure some it wasn't kind of an because that hitbox is insane, and so if they showed that on because screen, people would I know, protest and be like, like "What are you doing, Gabe?" Right now, we're playing um, we're playing Toho Eight, and Toho Eight has a visible hitbox and if memory serves it was the first one to do so uh in the toho series and so i'm wondering if we're in a chicken and egg kind of situation here like who was who was first to do it was it cave was it toho you know where where did that uh where did that happen i'm just double checking Escaluda to see if there's a hitbox in there. No, there isn't. 
So yes, uh, Mushimisama was the first one with a visible visible hitbox. Espluda did not have one. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, but like I was saying, you know, uh, you've got Mushi in November of '04 that did the visible hitbox. You have Toho Eight that came out in 2004 and did a visible hitbox. What I don't know is whether that was from the start or if that was patched in later. So was it Cave that did it first or was it Zune that did it first? Oh my god. That's that's an interesting question. Hmm. I feel like there's a way to answer that, right? As far as do we know which one came out to the day? Like which one came out very first to the day? That's a good question. Uh, let me see if I can find that out because. So Mushi came out. Oh, uh, okay. So it was Mushi by a hair. Uh, looks like Toho 8 released at Comicat 67, December 20 or December 30th, 2004. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And so, Mushi came out in 2004. Yeah, in but October. in November. I'm seeing October 12th arcade. Oh, really? According to CaveDB.com. Uh, okay, that might, was, I'm looking at the Shmup Wiki, so CaveDB might be more accurate. <laughs> yeah, this is November 19th is what it says here. Um, okay. So I would say it would make much more sense because of the way arcade releases work and stuff that Mushi came out with the visible hitbox Zun saw it and was like that's a good idea ran home to his computer show the hitbox (laughs) right (laughs) I think that's what happened because also at the time let's not forget Zun was way more obscure than Cave like if there was a relationship Cave were the popular kid in school now it's reversed these days but back then Cave were the popular kid in school. Zun was like the guy at the other lunch tables, like, man, wouldn't it be cool to be their friend? And so even if Zun came out first, I doubt in that era, Cave would have even paid attention to what he was up to. But we know for sure Zun was keeping an eye on Cave and was really into them. So I think it makes a lot more sense that Cave did it first. They came out in Mushi. Zun saw it, was like, that's a good idea, and then added it to Toho. Right. But here's what I'm wondering. How much, because we know that, that, um, we know that Toho stuff was beginning to pick up steam at that point, uh, because the games had moved on, uh, you know, a couple prior from the PC-98, which was the original platform he coded on, to PC. I want to say it was either Toho 6 or Toho 7 that's, that moved over to Windows, um, so you have to wonder, was the, was the move to a cuter aesthetic and a more anime style aesthetic, more colorful looks and stuff, do you suppose that there's any possibility that, that someone at Cave was aware of Toho and said, we should do that? Or, you know, this is a like that it was kind of the opposite there where they said, oh, this is a good idea. You know, we should we should adopt this kind of maybe cuter look instead of all the military stuff. 
I think that definitely happened, but I think that happened later on around Death Smiles. I think like the Death Smiles era is like really influenced by Toho, or I would assume that. But I think what happened here, this is my theory. I wonder if you would agree or think it's pretty accurate. I think what is more likely happening is that everyone, they're all in the same pool of culture and styles and trends. And there was like something outside of the shmup genre, a bigger trend in Japanese culture that was just washing over all the shmups at the same time. So rather than it being like Zun who came up with it and then uh, Cave copied him, it's more like some bigger cultural shift was happening in anime and manga and all that stuff. And everyone was reacting to it in their own ways. And so I think Cave reacted to it by... Let's do like a cute bug game, like uh, this anime and stuff. And maybe Zun was acting to it like, oh, let's do some Moe girl stuff like Sailor Moon or whatever he was thinking. But I think that that might that that would be my theory for this period. Then I think later on with Death Smiles, Cave was like, Toes, that's a good idea. (laughs) I I think this era, maybe it was more of a cultural thing. Yeah, you could be right. I mean, certainly there's there's a much greater focus on the very colorful aesthetics and things like that. Because I, I, you know, I mentioned before that actually my first, uh, my first real exposure to Don Maku was blue wish resurrection. Uh, and that was what? 2006, I think. Don't you feel like that game was inspired by Mushi? I've always felt that way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's like mushy bootleg on the PC, basically. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's still very cool. Mushy as a as a shmup with traditional kind of spaceships and and enemies rather than bugs and and uh, stuff like that. I'm trying to look up what were the most popular anime in 2004. To see, like, was there, like, a really popular anime in 2004 that was kind of moe or cute? And everyone's like, this is a good idea. (laughs) I'm trying to find it. Uh, But. Yeah, I mean. That's kind of tricky to track down. There's there's definitely some stuff in there that you could maybe. That you could maybe look at. Like, uh, well, I mean. I don't know. It seems like. Maybe there's not a ton that's super cute. I mean, there's Go Go Girls, like Girls Bravo or whatever. There's Howl's Moving Castle, but that's that's uh, Studio Ghibli, isn't it? That's not. I'm. I, I. They've made a castle game or castle show, so that sounds right to me. Yeah. Steam Boy, which isn't overly cute, um, and I thought it was boring. You know, Steam Boy, though, kind of looks like Pro Gear. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Interesting. It's all coming together now. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. It, d- it doesn't seem like there was a lot of super cute stuff that was popular around that time. Oh, uh, yeah. So I Maybe guess- a little bit more on like the, the trendy, like less less mainstream stuff, maybe? Maybe. And, you know, Cave, I get the feeling, this this might be just a theory, but I get the feeling that the Cave Boys were really into anime. <laughs> so they probably were watching all kinds of stuff that wasn't exactly mainstream. 
That would make sense. I mean, there's definitely some stuff during that era that that you could see potentially being an influenced Yumeria or uh, Ninja Nonsense. What's this one? You know, there's a there's a few things that might have that were, I guess, during that time that you know might have might have been influential. That is really cool, though, how close Toho 8 and Mujimi-sama came out to each other. Right. Well, yeah, and, and especially, I, I think your theory has merit that that uh, Mushi came out with the visible hitbox, Zun saw it, and, and went, oh, that's a good idea, and then implemented <laughs> yeah. it in his game. You know, I don't know, I don't know how how much time that took him to do before then the release at Comicat basically a month later. I mean wouldn't you I'm now I'm just totally projecting though, but I'm putting myself in Zun's shoes. Comicat's like a big show or whatever. It's like Comic Con, but for like random computer stuff, right? And anime yeah. things. It's hard to exactly have equivalent, but it's kinda like Comic Con, right? I would imagine what would happen is just knowing, having done Shmup Slam and stuff like this, I would imagine like the week before Comic Cat, he's just at his computer, like changing all this stuff and like trying to get it to all. Like he's he's like thinking of ideas, like oh crap, hitbox, and he's just running to his computer and shoving it all in before the before the show. I could see that happening. I, I have no idea if that actually happened, but I could see something like that happening where. The, a week or two before the show, he's like just throw throwing ideas at the computer, trying to get it in there. Yeah, the other thing is is uh, I guess the other thing is since people bring their stuff, their wares to Comicat in physical form, he would have already had to have placed the order for the game CDs. Um, so I wonder if he would have have even had time to go and make those changes beforehand. Um, even if he had seen Mushi in the arcade on day one, would he have, would he have had time to go and, and uh, implement that in his game before being able to get the final, final code compiled and to, you know, the, pressing plant or whatever before that first batch of CDs came out. Oh, that's a good question. I always assumed the bro was like burning his own CDs. I always kind of assumed that, that he's sitting at his computer burning those suckers. But you think he like did a, like a more commercial, like he, you know, he put in an, I just, because think about how low a print run that would be. It'd be like, uh, yeah, I'm printing a hundred CDs. <laughs> Right. <laughs> back in those days. Remember back in those days, like you had to have like massive print runs to do anything? Right. So I always assumed this would be so interesting to find out. I always assumed Zun was sitting at his computer burning the games himself, like and like stacking them up on his shelf. Like I don't know. Maybe he's not doing that. It's possible that he did the initial run of those. Um I know that it is has been made available commercially and you can buy it. In fact, um since we're playing Toho 8 this month, I'm actually thinking about buying a CD copy of it. And there's a Dojin outfit that sells several of the Toho games still on CD that you can buy. It's like 1,500 yen. And so I'm I'm seriously thinking about 
maybe buying a copy just because... Uh, do you think those are from Zun himself? Or do you think those are just... Because Zun is so lax with his licensing that they're just some people <laughs> selling them. Like, hey, let's sell them. And uh, Zun's like, all right, do whatever. It's a good question. I don't know. Um, but I mean, it does... It does... Uh, if you look at this particular website, um, uh, Tora Noana, it does... It does have everything listed as Shanghai Alice Troop. So, who knows? Oh, who knows? That's but, pretty cool, Yeah, though. But you could be right. I mean, it, it might have been... He might have seen Mushi and seen the visual hitbox, had that eureka moment, and then gone home and feverishly coded that into his game um, so that he could, you know, burn all the CDs to prepare for Comic-Cat. 67 you know i guess we can we can we can maybe make that our uh our our mushihime sama toho headcanon (laughs) mushihime sama mystery solve the mystery audience (laughs) but it, it would be i guess it would be interesting either way whether zun saw it and went oh that's a good idea and then went and did it or is it just a coincidence that in a a natural evolution of the genre where two people who um, who were developing these games since you know since roughly the same time because uh, because Dome Patch came out in 95 and the first Toho game even though it wasn't purely a shmup came out in 96 and so I think the first, uh, Toho 2 I think also maybe came out in 96 or in early 97 so yeah it, it's possible that he was in, that he was inspired by it it's also possible that it was just two then prolific developers had the same idea about the same time my my view on this is I think it is likely that cave was or that uh zun was a huge cave fanboy and that he kept a really close eye on what cave was up to like you know like like almost like a movie's coming out. oh crap mushimi sama's coming out and he's like you know day one he's standing at the mushi cabinet like oh my god this is awesome and having ideas because i i also think what might have happened with zun is he made that first toho game he played dodonpachi because there's such a influence on the later toho games he's like no this is a good idea and it just feels like throughout the toho games you can see how much cave was influencing him along the way even with like bullet patterns like oh that's hibachi this is there's so much stuff from cave that is lifted into those early toho games it would not surprise me at all that mushihimisama is coming out and he's keeping an eye on it and he's like ready to take ideas from it as soon as it comes out Maybe that's my own thought. I just don't. I just don't see them as peers during this era. I don't see them as like Cave and then Zun, and they're two sort of separate peers from one another. I feel like Cave is influencing Zun extremely heavily, and he's absorbing it and he's watching it, kind of like, kind of like um, the way Western anime fans watch Japanese anime. Anime, so like a Japanese anime comes out and it's super popular, and then all of a sudden, like Western type of 
type of anime that's influenced it, like Castlevania or whatever. That's it, clearly taking a lot of infra- inspiration from Japan, but it's not like the guys in Japan are looking at the uh, the Castlevania anime and are like, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, I think the influence is flowing one direction at this stage, is my point. Right. And I think yeah. that direction is from Cave to Zun. Yeah, I mean, I think that early on in the uh, in the in the lifespan of of these two entities, you're probably right. Now, a decade later, when Cave was slowing down, um, yeah, and you know, Toho is popping off, then you then maybe you could you could say that uh, at that point maybe they were more peers, but. Yeah, I, I think early on you're probably right that that Zun was was a cave fan and was watching what they were doing and you know implementing some of that in his game. So it's very yeah, the, plausible, I think. Because the problem with a lot of these coincidence stories, we hear these all the time. Like a great example of this is when a Bug's Life came out and then Ants came out <laughs> right. the same year, and both are about bugs, and the studio's like. Pure coincidence. It, we just were both thinking about bugs. What? What? You don't think Hollywood studios think about making shows about bugs? And then, of course, it later comes out. Of course, what happened was the other studio heard about a bug's life, and they're like, that's a good idea, and they made ants. And I think with the, with the thing about, I, I feel like I'm picking up on with these Japanese game companies and these arcade studios is they were rubbing shoulders way more than we expect like they were in they were in each other's business way more than we expect so the idea that like both of them simultaneously separate from one another both came up with the same idea the same year almost the same month like within 60 days of each other i don't think that i think one of them came up with it the other one's like that's a good idea and put it in the game and i think in this situation cave came up with it and Zun thought it was a great idea, right? Yeah, and I, mean, I rest my case. <laughs> it's de- it, I would say it definitely feels like it's more than just something in the water, so to speak. That uh, everybody was drinking, you know. It was there. There's definitely some. Um, I can give you a real example of that that I'm fully willing to admit, which is I sit around and talk to Bog Hog all day about shmups, and we argue with each other and agree with each other on these different things. And he was showing me, before Gunvane came out, he was showing me some footage of Gunvane and stuff he was working on. And he had this one thing in Gunvane where he had he has the ship and he has this sort of crosshair on the ship that blinks. So it's this big crosshair on the ship and he put that in so that it's easier to visually track the crosshair. I saw that on my Discord window. I turned my computer, if only there's video of me. Okay, I'm turning. And I immediately turned to my other screen immediately coded that into house of bullets like 10 seconds later I was like <laughs> that's a good idea bam now house of bullets has a flashing crosshair yeah. like so it's it, it sounds kind of crazy but it's really not that crazy that zun would see that and go ah and go home and put that in tow i could just absolutely picture him doing that well with the size of japan you gotta imagine that there's a huge amount of cross-pollination in this i mean with the size of a game like mushihime you're not going to have something that's just there. It's going to go out on test location, right? And people are going to play it. Yeah, talk about so it. So you can imagine. I mean, look, even looking at Cave, Cave was heavily influenced by Toplan, right? It's not like these things yeah. happen in a vacuum. And if they do, then some sort of miracle has occurred here. This is Japan we're talking about. <laughs> right. 
there's going to be cross-pollination, people talking, people moving on there. <clears throat> I mean, look at Namco or Namcot on there. There's so much of of them taking different ideas. So the heck, they even made one of the uh, hacks or different ideas official, right? Miss Pac-Man. Yeah. So that's very true. I, I mean, to to think that we're dealing with a Coke and Pepsi type situation is just ludicrous. Well, and that and that that makes me wonder if the October twelfth, two thousand four date that's on the Schmup's wiki, if maybe that's reflective of an earlier test market date. Yeah, something like that. So that would make if, sense. If that's the case, then that would make even more sense if he would have had access to an early test market, um, you know, of the game or something like that. And then, then he would have had even more time to, to, uh, add that feature to his own game. You know, it's funny. We talked about this too. There's no going back. That's such a, that's such a, like a groundbreaking feature that I never even considered till you brought it up because after that, there was no going back. None of the other cave games that I can recall removed the visible hitbox after that point. They're all in it, right? Isn't it in every other cave game after that, the visible hitbox? I think so. And and I want to say nearly every Don Maku-style game that I've seen yeah. that has come out since Mushihime-sama has implemented something like that. Yeah. You know, I think Mark Phoenix said a video is you're going to need a bathrobe, a pipe, and probably one of those yes. fancy backgrounds. We'll just call it great moments in shmup history. <laughs> yes, yes. Man, I would. if only I was a little bit more able to read Japanese and stuff, I would love to dig through as much of that kind of stuff. Like all that, those little details of the development of the games and stuff. That would be so interesting to find out. It, it, it's just such a shame that the Japanese developing stuff, they have this culture of secrecy around them that I find kind of sad because it'd be so interesting to hear about all these different stories and things they're up to and everything, but everything's top secret, you know. Yakuza, don't cross them. The Yakuza will get you type of stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, uh so we've talked about a lot of great features in Mushimi Sama. I'm really glad we covered these. So we got the visible hitbox. We've got the the cancels in the bullets. Shall we talk about the boss fights a little bit? Because the boss fights in Mushimi Sama, I also think, are really cool. And I don't know if they're new ideas, but they're definitely ideas that stand out to me. For example, one pattern in Mushimi Sama that to this day is like a mind melter is if you go into stage three the final pattern of the stage three boss just everyone listening right now go to youtube find a stage three run of mishimi sama and watch that pattern what is going on with the bullets in that pattern they're moving <laughs> it's like some kind of uh you know like when you look at those visual tricks in your eyes is it moving is it not is it holding still is it not because I remember talking to people about this pattern, and I'm saying, are the bullets arcing? Are they accelerating? Are they decelerating? And people are telling me, no, they, they just move statically, but the, the formation of it is crazy. Because 
one other thing that I don't know if Mushi is the first to do this or anything, but it's definitely something that comes up in Mushi afterward is Cave started to get really funny with the way they did the visual trickery of their bullet patterns. Like, for example, the one famous one is like this one pattern that turns, but it almost looks three dimensional as it turns. You know what yes. I'm talking about? Yes. The, the three dimensional boss patterns, and then they've got these floating circles that are overlap and like is it above is it below is it speeding up is it slowing down these these visual patterns i think like cave are having a lot of fun playing with like playing with the way patterns work visually in this game yeah and the the turning the turning thing i think is a is a uh a really interesting I guess flashpoint because you know thinking about it now having having been playing Gunvane recently there are some there's a couple of spots in Gunvane where the bullets kind of do something similar it's not it's not at that level of sort of 3D movement or whatever you know that visually 3D kind of thing but they sort of do that thing where the where the bullets come out and then the orientation of the pattern shifts direction. Um, yeah. So it looks like it's going to wall you in, but then they turn to where, oh, well, now there's a lane I can sneak through. And so, yeah, there are several of those in Mushi, and it's it it's such an interesting way of communicating that movement and... I don't know. It's it's hard to explain. You just kind of well, have I think to see what it, it. I think the idea behind it is, so a lot of the genre is about reading patterns visually and, you know, understanding where they're going to break, where they're going to open. And I, I'm assuming what happened is Cave spent hundreds of thousands of hours designing bullet patterns and they're sitting there and they're like, how do we come up with a new bullet pattern? We've done them all. We've done everything. And then one day they're like, what if we made the bullet pattern three-dimensional? That would be really hard to read, and by damn, it is hard to read. And so I, it's such a cool evolution of how bullet patterns can be presented. And it's not something that's really been explored too much after what Cave was doing. Like, I can't really think of many other shmups that come out now that play with this concept of your, the bullets turn and they're three-dimensional, sort of, but not at the same time. And it's so hard to read. I have tr- I always have trouble with those patterns, the way yeah. they look. I mean, I think the closest the closest analog in in a more modern sense might be something like Revolver 360. But that's more you're manipulating the space around the patterns, right? Um, so it sort of flips the script in that regard. But yeah, I mean, I think everybody else has just sort of followed suit in doing some of that, but I don't know that anyone else has been able to do it quite like Cave. Um, and certainly Mushi is evidence that you can really, you can really get creative in that sense. Yeah. It, it feels like it might be hard to improve upon that. Like they, they sort of hit the magic formula, uh, as soon as they did it. Yeah, and what's interesting about Mushimi Sama is it's another breaking point with Cave because it feels like it is, the, even though visually and a lot of things it's doing is very different than the earlier games, but 
at its core, it still feels like kind of like the last cave game that has that Dodon Pachi DNA to it. And then after that, everything, it's hard to explain what, but there's kind of a shift in the way Cave does their games where they, they go like full bullet hell after Mushi. Like those little traces of Toplan, I guess is what I'm getting at. Like those little traces of Toplan are all throughout Cave up until Mushi. And Mushi even has original mode, which is like Toplan mode, basically. Uh, and, and it has like some elements of like like the weird shot patterns and stuff that feels kind of Toplan-y like. And then after Mushi, they just go full bullet hell mode. And like every other shmup after that is that I can think of is like very rooted in a bullet hell, f- hell feel. And it doesn't have exactly that. Like, for, for example, with the shot types, I think that's the best way to look at it because the shot types in Mushi are like the shot types in Dodonpachi where they're kind of crazy, a little bit unbalanced, very unique from one another. And then the shot types moving forward throughout Cave are usually much more balanced, but also their variation isn't that big. They're not that distinctive from each other. Like playing Rosa versus playing Windia, like they're different in their speeds and stuff, but... They have a real similar feel to them, but Mushi, like playing W and then playing S feels really different. Yeah. I think I get what you're saying, though. I mean, like you said, <clears throat> original is sort of like Toaplan mode. And yeah. I, I want to say that was part of their design philosophy when they did that. Um, because it's got some faster bullets than you would see in some of their other games, and certainly than in most of their later games. You didn't get a lot of fast bullets after that. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then of course, in in the later iterations of Mushi, it became slower bullets, because the patterns and everything became much more dense. Yeah. Remember, like, a great, yeah, that's a great comparison. Think of the boss patterns of Mushi versus the boss patterns of Futari. They're actually, like, really different. Futari feels almost, like, more in common with Toho, whereas Mushi feels more in common with Dodonpachi. Like, they're thick, they're but there's also kind of, like, a pace to them, and they're less... Like, Futari's patterns are more like Toho patterns in that they're very directed. Like, they're, you get walled in, and then you have to kind of follow along with the walls and kind of f- play by the patterns game. But, like, in Mushi, there's all kinds of crazy stuff you can do. Like, the Boss 5 patterns, like, half of the patterns you can just straight up misdirect if you really want to. Watch K- Kiwi do it. He'll, like, throw half... Through pure movement, he'll throw half the pattern off the screen. Or like the boss four patterns where if you place yourself in the corner, some parts of the pattern won't come out. Like there, there's much more of a sort of uh, aimed, I don't know exactly, sort of dynamic feel to the, or to the Mushi patterns. Whereas Futari feels very, this is what you're doing. This is the lane you're going in. You're going to follow our rules. You're going to be a good boy. Whereas Mushi feels much more like, like uh, open-ended as to how these patterns are going to go and you can always kind of come up with crazy strategies to get around them and stuff so i that's what i mean by that like the mushi feels like the last cave game like that and then the rest of the cave games you kind of play by the boss's rules most of the time they tell you where you're going and you just do what you're supposed to do yeah yeah and you know i think 
I think maybe there's an element that started to creep in in the arrange mode and and 1.5, particularly with the TLB, um, because of how insane that pattern is. I mean, there's kind of a way that you have to approach that. Well, the TLB pattern, that's a great point, because, okay, so uh, one of Aki's first patterns is absolutely... (laughs) crazy if you don't know how it works because it's just this wall coming at you like a futari pattern but the difference is is if you learn how to misdirect the pattern you can literally just stand in place let's sit there in place a lot of the time like watch kiwi's runs he'll just sit there and it's all about just timing the movement so you sit there and the pattern goes by and then you just move like barely and then it'll redirect the entire pattern and so when you're a new player, it's just this massive, insane wall that's impossible to get past. Then you watch Kiwi do it, and you're like, that doesn't look hard. It's so Because it's so manipulatable. You can just sit there, and it'll just move the pattern. There's so many... Like, Mushi, even the TLBs like that. Like, there's... I don't know. It's crazy. It's hard to explain, but the patterns are very manipulatable. You can really make them misdirect and do all these weird things, whereas... Maybe I'm not as good of a Futari player. Maybe this is a possibility in Futari. But it feels like in Futari, that's not so much the case. It's more like just navigating your way through it like a maze. Whereas in Mushi, you can make the pattern do all kinds of weird stuff. And what's kind of sucky, but also kind of fun is if you mess up, the pattern will just kill you. It's not like a question of can you dodge it. It's like if you misdirect the pattern wrong, it just hits you and you die. And that's it. Because it's just this wall. And then even the even the final attack with like you do this this remind it reminds me of hibachi a little bit because you learn this sort of weird bomb meta to it where it's all about timing the bombs like that's not bullet hell bullet hell you don't time bombs you don't do that in other bullet hells but mushi you do it you time the bombs so that they end and your invulnerability frames are in the right spot and that's something you do in Dodonpachi as well. Like on Hibachi, you time the bombs at certain times so you get the max amount of invulnerability without triggering too much of his bomb shield. And then you change his health bar at the right moment so he moves at the right time. Like there's all these weird quirks to the boss fights. And Mushi has that, where I don't think that's quite the same thing in later cave games that I'm aware of. Right. And it seems like there's only. There are only a few examples like that in in later games, like with uh, you know with Crimson Clover, where you where you want to take out the the bosses with a full lock on to get the extra stars, or uh, you know Gunvane, since we're, we're we're talking about that as well, where if you use a bomb to clear the last of the health on a boss, oh then yeah, you get the extra stars and stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's also one on Gunvane Bog told me about. Here's a secret. On the final boss, not the TLB, but the final boss that becomes the TLB, if on the very first pattern you bomb the center of it, you blow off the side pieces and it won't have some extra attacks. But that's only like right in the beginning. You can't ever do it any other time. It's just right when the bomb boss begins, you just bomb the center and it blows off the sides. Yeah, Bog, Bog will do stuff like that that isn't typical of a lot of bullet hell. Like, I, I, I can't see Crimson Clover doing that. You Like, you bomb a certain part and it blows off the wings, but only during this one phase. Yeah. Huh. 
I'm going to have to try that. Yep. That's my tip for Gunvane for everyone is coming into the final boss, bomb right when it starts and you'll blow right in the center and you'll blow off its side wings and it'll make the patterns of the first phase easier to dodge. Oh, neat. So any other things about Mushimisama that we're missing that seem really obvious? Well, of course, we could always, of course, talk about the porting history of the game because that's very rich and complicated. And I'm sure a lot of people are curious about, okay, how do we actually play the game? We've talked about it, but how do you play it? Right. And the answer is you save up $3,000 and then you go on to eBay or you need to find a hitman in Japan and then you buy the PCB. That's how you play Mushi. <laughs> That's, we all have the PCB, right? Right. <laughs> On this call? Yeah, we all are proud owners of the Mushimisama PCB. No, I mean, it's interesting looking at at the, the porting history because the... Because this is one of those things where it feels like the game... If the game hadn't been relatively successful, it could have been locked to arcade and ps2 like some other shmup we could mention any i guess what that shmup is <laughs> ibarra ibarra yeah yeah <laughs> poor ibarra i a little spoiler i'm doing this my next video is going to be about like tracking cave financials and cave sales and stuff and just looking at I can't know the exact numbers but looking at the year ibarra came out and caves uh, sales Overall, I don't think that game sold very well. Rip Ibarra. Yeah. Yeah, and... You know, the, the PS2 version of, of Mushi, and I think we kind of mentioned this before, but it's not fantastic. And what is curious to me is that, of course, this was sort of... Not the first example, but an early example of taking an arcade game and then adding an arrangement to it. You know, we kind of got yes. this with we kind of got this with the earlier Ray games. You know, there was a there was a sad there was like a, an arrange mode for Ray Storm and Ray Crisis and stuff like that on on the home versions uh, for PS One. Um, but you know, it was kind of early in that in that space where you started to see the arcade game ported to the home, but then given a little bit more content to sort of, I don't know, make it maybe more full featured as a release. And so the arrange mode originated with the PS4 port or PS2 port. But then of course, yes, was carried over in Mushi HD on the 360 um, several years later, and then, then that of course also made its way to the Steam version, and then to the Switch version as well, since all of those have kind of been based on that 360 port. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that was the jumping-off point for sure. So, what's interesting about the arrange modes of the PS2 versions and why they're like so good? We all wonder, like, okay. Maybe if the port wasn't all that great, why were the arrange modes so good? My theory of this, I think it's pretty solid theory, is because Arika did the PS2 ports and Arika made 
arcade games, Tetris Grandmaster, for example, that are really good. And so I think there was a group in Eureka who are like hella, hella good developers and programmers and probably gamers as well that are like, shmups, we got this. We can do this. Whereas some of the later companies that try arrange modes, 5PB, for example, make horrible arrange modes because they don't have that same s- skill in their development staff. But it, it, would, would, it wouldn't really make sense, right? Eureka make Tetris Grandmaster. It would make sense that they are actually really good at shmups and could come up with a cool arrange mode. At least that's my theory. Sure, that makes sense. So here's something interesting to think about with the PS2 port, because I just looked it up. So I was curious to see how much is the PS2 port, because um, basically, like the more, the lower the print run, the more expensive it would be these days. Would be the logic, right? Supply and demand. Well, to my surprise, Mushimisama is not that expensive on eBay. It's only sixty-five bucks. And what's interesting is that a lot there's different versions of it, and one of the versions says Taito Best on it. And that makes me wonder, is that like a greatest hits type of thing? As in, it sold well, so they did a second run called Taito Best? There's at least two runs of it, right? If there's one that says Taito's Best and one that doesn't, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm I, looking at it on eBay now, and there's clearly two different versions. The original version that is kind of the full cover, and then the title mm-hmm. best that sort of has that border around it. So that would there's at least two print runs, which would make which would mean, in my theory, that the original must have sold if they did another print run of it. There's not two print runs of SDOJ. There's I'm, I'd be shocked if there's two print runs of Ibarra, right? But there's two of Mushi on PS2. And the fact that it's really not all that expensive, this is just all circumstantial, but I, I would assume that means that it sold pretty well. Yeah. There's also a limited edition uh, big box version that uh, has uh, what looks like a little figure of Reiko um, That's cool. Yeah, it looks like a little figure of Reiko, uh, but an even younger version of Reiko, as if it was sort of foreshadowing um, uh, her her presence in the game later, because it's like her holding this little koju uh, beetle, the little golden rhinoceros beetle. And just for comparison, I looked up Ibarra on PS2, $338. <laughs> so I think that goes to show that I the Mushi PS2 port sold. That That's what I'm getting at. I think it sold. The fact that it has a Taito's Best, the fact that it's pretty readily available now, uh, whereas Ibarra on the PS2, $338. I think, I think that Mushi port sold, and that's why we got so many ports later on. Yeah, I mean, even the limited edition is not super expensive. It's not cheap, right. but it's not terrible. Whereas you borrow, you were getting 300 Yeah. So here's a sealed art book of a borrow for $1,000. <laughs> is that on your uh, short list of things you're buying? The Ibarra art book for $1,000? He bought the PCB. Definitely not. He's got the PCB. He can afford to spend it. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. We all are high rollers here with the PCB, so that's nothing to us. So, what would you? What is your evaluation of the PS2 port? Because you have it, don't you? No, I, I don't yet. I was just messing around with it because I had free McBoot set up. Um, oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, yes. But, yeah. So I we mean, both have it on our favorite memory card. How right. do you feel about that version? <laughs> no, and it's been a while since I actually messed with the PS2 version, but I guess my initial impressions were, at the time, were, this is harder than Futari, probably because of the faster bullets. Yeah. Um, but also, this doesn't look very good by comparison. And of course, I was coming off the much prettier HD visuals of Futari and yeah. then getting into the. Um, I'm pretty sure that, that like most PS2 games, it's 480i. Um, yes. So it's going to look soft and fuzzy and not particularly great. So a lot you know of that what's cool is DOJ has a four, a 240p mode on the oh. PS2 port. Oh, does it? Yeah, it's really cool. In the options menu, you can turn it on. It'll go 240p. Oh, nice. I don't know if Mushi does or not, though. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I ha- I'd have to look. Um, I actually have the DOJ PS2 port, so me be, too. <laughs> that'll be uh, something I'd have to try at some point, but yeah. I mean, obviously, now that M2 is doing uh, a DOJ port, that's going to be the definitive way to play it. No doubt, because the PS2 port, as good as it is, doesn't have black label, which is pretty important. So right. it's a good port, but it doesn't have black label, which is a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, a range is interesting because it's the only mode where you always fight the TLB at the end, even if you just credit feed. Yeah. So it is kind of neat that it gives you the opportunity to see and fight the TLB, even if you are completely unequipped, like I am, to to fight a boss like that. It's still cool that it offers you the opportunity to see that boss, which I think in, in the arcade original, you have to play on ultra, ultra to see it yes. and wild aren't there conditions you have to meet is it a no miss or i would assume that you can't continue but i don't know beyond that okay but i don't know for sure because i've never played ultra beyond stage two. <laughs> oh, i've made it to stage two but that's fine <laughs> yeah uh, it's it's pretty pretty difficult um but yeah, a range is interesting. The the soundtrack in a range is definitely a bit more of a mellow vibe than the original I version. I love that arrange soundtrack. The especially stage five when they get the flutes going. I always I'll go in the Steam version you can change it. Even if you're playing on original mode, you can change the soundtrack. I always put stage five to the arrange version because I uh. gotta have the flute. <laughs> You gotta get that flute in there. Uh, yeah, I love arrange mode. It is probably one of my favorite arranges ever because it, it does so many cool things. First of all, like you said, you fight the TLB, but it's not ultra mode TLB. It's maniac mode, 
well, like what would have been sort of a maniac mode TLB, it's nerfed a bit, which is nice. And then on top of that, it has an auto bomb, but the auto bomb isn't broken, as in like you just get hit in auto bombs. It's like if you have full bomb stocks and then you get hit, then it auto bombs and it drains your bombs. So it still rewards you for, um, it still rewards you for knowing how to bomb and stuff. But at the same time, it, if you want to play fast and wild. It, it gives you that opportunity without having to worry about dying with full bomb stocks. So I really like that. And then on top of that, the really cool thing about it is what makes it really amazing is that you can change your shot type with a button. So you can go from wide shot to medium shot to uh, super sh S, whatever S is, speedy shot uh, with a button. And that really opens up the gameplay a lot because you can do all kinds of fun stuff with that. Yeah, that additional element of strategy is is uh, a cool addition to the arrange mode. Yeah, and it also allows you to basically do things you wouldn't be able to do just flat out. For example, there's some point blanks you can only pull off in arrange mode because well, with what because wide shot does insane amount of point blank damage but it has a kind of a slower movement speed, right? But what you can do is you can fly up with S, switch to wide, point blank them, do tons of damage, and then switch back to S and retreat. Where in originally, in like Maniac Arcade, you can't do that because you can't get there in time with wide. You could get there in time with strong or S, whatever S is, but you wouldn't be able to do that same amount of damage. So you can't really do that juicy of a point blank so it's just really fun, some of the strategies you can pull off by being able to switch the shot types. Right, because even though you do more damage point-blanking, regardless of what weapon you're using, I'm sure there are situations where it's just not worth doing because <clears throat> you're you're not going to be able to avoid whatever the incoming pattern is if you're that close. Yes, yeah, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And you can also do lots of really fun stuff with it, too. Yeah. Even not only just in boss fights, but in the stages and stuff. Like certain sections that are really good for wide shot, but then you're feeling like you're getting walled in. You can switch over to S real quick and just do a full screen movement really fast. Just being able to, on the fly, switch between high movement speed and wide coverage with your shot is really good and really useful in a lot of situations. So the one kind of bad part about arrange almost is not bad, but it's kind of almost kind of a bummer is after you play a bunch of arrange mode, then you go back to arcade and you can't switch shot types anymore. You're like, Oh, <laughs> I miss doing that. Cause it just opens up the gameplay so much. And I, I almost wonder, this would be really interesting if we had more information. I wonder if arrange sort of influenced Futari in a way, because if if Cave had been playing a, a bunch of arranged mode and been like, this is really good, let's just make it happen in Futari, because that's kind of how Futari works, right? Like, when you're in uh, Rapid Shot, you are in Wide Mode, and then when you're in Concentrate Shot, you're in S Mode, and that's just like how you play range. When you're in Rapid Shot, you're Wide Mode, and then when you do Concentrate Shot, you swap over to S Type, so... Like, in a way, it's kind of a precursor to Futari. Yeah. What are your thoughts on a range, Addicted? I think I should have played it more, because I don't remember <laughs> much about the range mode. I played 
We'll see how normal for survival. I would say it's a tad bit easier than Maniac Mode until you get to the TLB. <laughs> so up until the TLB, it's a, I, a tad bit easier. I think I think the hitbox is also slightly smaller in range mode. They give you like the ultra hitbox, I'm pretty sure. So you are really slipping and sliding through patterns in a range, which is really fun. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Now, myself, I tend to prefer 1.5 or Matsuri mode. Um, mm-hmm. One reason is because of the soundtrack. The I actually really dance like the soundtrack, soundtrack in 1.5. <laughs> so what's funny is we talked about this some other occasion that we won't mention. And... Uh, <laughs> And you mentioned the 1.5 soundtrack. And at the time, I was like, I can't remember what that soundtrack is. After the call, I popped it on. I'm like, this is like straight up dance hall. <laughs> like, it's like really dancey. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's, it's super high energy and I love it. But um, the thing I like about 1.5 is you immediately get the choice between do you play it straight and you power up like normal? Or do you go into 1.5? with full power right off the bat, but then everything is crazy immediately, and there's way more bullets and more stuff going on. And the goofy thing is, I actually like the latter, even though I tend to still not like a ton of bullets and stuff like that. I kind of like how it sort of balances that out, because... Yeah, there's more bullets and stuff, but then because you are as powerful as you can get right from the jump, it feels like it's so much more balanced and fair that way. Um, You're not just getting thrown to the wolves with way more bullets and and denser patterns without any kind of way to mitigate that. So I really like that that's an option in 1.5. And it really reminds me a little bit of expert mode in Star Fox 64. I promise this will make sense. In expert mode of Star Fox 64, what happens is when you first go into Corneria, it has way more enemies and way more stuff going on. And your first impression is this mode is going to be insane. Look at Canaria. It's full of enemies. So when I get to Venom, it's just going to be like 5,000 enemies. But it actually isn't that way. What it is, is that what they did was they balanced Corneria to be harder so that it has a more sort of even level difficulty curve. But when you get to Venom, it's really not all that different. It's actually the earlier stages that are more wildly different because they're trying to balance it. And I think that's kind of the same way with Matsari, where you get into it in stage one, you're like, this is going to get insane when we get to stage five. But it actually doesn't. It just, uh, just those early stages, because like you're saying, you're more powered up early on, have a bit more of a buff to them. But it's not like this huge difficulty spike that happens later or anything. Right. Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, it makes me think of like Breath of the Wild, where when you first start, you're super weak and everything is difficult because you have so little resources. But then by the time you get to the end of the game, everything's way easier because you've got all the tools. (laughs) Yeah. 
So that's fun. Also, there's like color things going on in Matsuri mode, right? And I kind of forget what exactly that's all about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 1.5 does have uh, an, the auto bomb feature, like a range. I, you are. I think you're right, though. There is some kind of color, uh, color related thing, but I'm not entirely sure what the specifics are on that. But yeah, for whatever reason, 1.5 just just feels good. For yeah, me. I think the the bat the power bump, like you're saying, I'm pretty sure you get like a shot power bump so you like do more damage or something like it feels that way anyway but anyway what i was trying to do was uh i better pull up google so firefox doesn't pull this crap on me again was see what uh was going on with the colors in the matsuri mode oh yeah 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 i don't see it on the the shmups wiki page no looking at the at first when you were talking about with the uh Toho games on there. I expected someone to be reusing uh, AOL floppy disk and just rewriting their game on them, but it looks like it's a legit uh, press CD for Toho 8. Right. Yeah. So I don't know whether I don't know whether those were fully pressed for Comicat 67 or if Mark's theory is is right and there's uh, you know, early kind of CDR copies floating out there. They're all just, they're all hand signed there. Thank you for supporting the Toho project. They're expensive too. I looked at them; and it was like thirty three dollars for a, a single version of that. Well, if you want to get if you want to get that, yeah, um, I'll link you to the one I was looking at. You look at the player's choice. Taito's Taito's Choice sounds like a. This is the one that I was looking. All at. right, that sounds like a bad bottle or a interesting bottle of liquor, right? Taito's Choice. Yeah, that's this oh, exact right. same one I saw. It's thirty bucks. This is a lot cheaper though. <clears throat> right. Yeah, it's like fifteen uh, fifteen hundred yen. Right, so it's probably like sixteen bucks or so. Yeah. Yeah, they do have they don't they don't mention the color section on here, but they do kind of talk about how the counter works and and uh, you know the the counter values and all of that in terms of the oh. scoring for one point five. I give up then. We'll never know. Yeah, well, I think it just speaks to it speaks to one of the one of the more maybe the fact that. The scoring in Mushi Himesama is a bit more uh, esoteric, I guess I'll say. Yes. That than some of the other games that feel like they're a bit more straightforward. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I think what happened is Cave made Mushi Himesama. They made the original mode, and they're like, "Wait, are we supposed to put a scoring system in the game? <laughs> uh, someone come up with something now!" And they just. It feels so thrown in, doesn't it? It feels so like an afterthought of yeah, some you shoot something or something. There, that's scoring. Well, what was it when I was watching the STG Weekly episode? 
they were kind of saying, yeah, scoring in the original mode is basically survival. And then yes. the, the only real scoring tricks are the Nana bushes on stage two. If you can milk them for additional amber while, uh, while they're closed. But other than that and timing your bullet cancels, uh, to maximize the amount of, of amber that you get from those, there's not really a lot from a scoring perspective on the original version that you're mm-hmm. going to be able to do to, to really maximize it. Yep. <laughs> and so the line between a world record score and not is, is not really that, not really that substantial for is when you watch the world record score of this game, it's not like, Whoa, it's not like, it's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> At least right. in original mode, in original mode. Right. Whereas I think probably with a range and, and 1.5 and certainly once you get into maniac and ultra, that's mm-hmm. where things become much more uh, competitive, I guess, from that standpoint. Yes. Because there's more that you can do, scoring-wise, and um, a lot more that... I guess it opens that up to be more interesting. It, yeah, it so... the uh, I was looking up once again. This is like a... Almost like a the guy rolling the boulder up the mountain and then it falls back down on him over and over and over. That's how I feel about trying to understand this game's scoring systems in Maniac and Ultra Mode. And I was literally looking them up once again before we recorded. And it is so... Basically, there's banking and counter-banking and chaining. And what basically, you just hit stuff with Rapid Shot, Okay. That's what you do. You hit stuff with rapid shot, and then you hold down uh, auto fire, and then you make an auto fire of your auto fire so that you can get your super shot. And then you just hold that, and you hit stuff with it, and you hold it on to enemies, and you don't die. And then you save it for the bosses, and then you kill the bosses and get very big points. There. <laughs> right. Explained. And, and there's there's more there's more to it in. In Maniac, where it yeah. actually, where the chaining actually matters, mm-hmm. so it feels a lot more like they were channeling Dodonpachi with Maniac um, and Ultra in that sense, because then it actually makes you route the game more specifically if you want to sort of full chain a stage and build up your counter much more specifically in order to keep that multiplier climbing. Yeah, but it's so different than Dodonpachi's chaining system because Dodonpachi's chaining system is all about hitting those links and keeping that combo meter going like a fighting game. Where this game's chaining system doesn't seem quite like that. Like, I don't recall seeing a lot of, like, links in the game and, like... Because the game's full of cancels. How do you link... When you've got a game canceling bullets every 10 seconds. So I don't know what exactly, how exactly the chaining system works as far as making sure the chain keeps going. But I know it's not like Dodonpachi, where Dodonpachi has very few cancels and 
this game is just like canceling all the time. So it, it doesn't seem that difficult in terms of routing to chain the game. But that's just my sort of very basic understanding of it. Well, I was watching a run of Maniac, and it seems like it's strictly just chaining enemy damage. So right. as as you're shooting things, you're getting tick points for every every contact for an enemy, which is one of the reasons why when you play um, Maniac or Ultra, in order to score high, you have to use W shot because you get yeah. so much more coverage with that plus you also um get more tick points yeah you get more tick points for every volley and so um because it does lower damage you can kind of maximize that so it's a way to sort of be able to hit the enemies and and kind of chain one enemy to the next uh, but it feels like maybe the Maybe the uh, the timer in between when you're doing damage is more lenient than uh, Dodonpachi. Yes. Because Definitely. in the original Dodonpachi, the chaining is super strict, and the window of time between enemy kills that you have to to increase the the chain is minuscule. Dodonpachi is. Uh, you can't even full chain some stages in the original Don Pachi. Exactly. You just can't. It's crazy. Yeah. And that's... And so they, they iterated on that with, with Dodon Pachi, and that feels much more, um, much more natural in that sense. But it's still fairly tight based on what I've seen. Uh-huh. I've never full chained... The entire game because that stage what is it stage five full chain after the hall of hell on those big carriers that come in that chain is insane and the only person i personally know who's ever done it besides like a japanese super player is juju kenobi did it one time because he's crazy like that but <laughs> th that chain is so hard that I had to like dig up a super secret video and make people mad by sharing it on my channel. It's still on my channel. It's like the the one five chain revealed or something like that. Like that chain was top secret. Shh. <laughs> so yeah, versus Mushi Misama, you don't have to dig up top secret videos to figure out how to chain. Right. Yeah. It just feels like they they took that same idea and just. Uh, just made the timing more lenient to where, you know, you didn't have to, you didn't have to have milliseconds of time between, oh, I'm doing damage on this enemy and now I got to do damage on this enemy right away or I'm yeah. going to drop my chain. It feels like they're, like, they're giving you a little bit more flexibility in that uh, to chain them together. And it's really fun to watch Kiwi's runs where he counterbanks on enemies. So he goes up and on big enemies and on bosses, especially, this is where you get your money. This is where you get your tick points because you can get up there and point blank them and you can just max out those meters and it is crazy. And it's really fun. But I guess the, the scary part about it is if you're going for like world record score or like a high score in the game, 
if you die during one of these sections, if you die during a boss fight or when you're counterbanking a boss or die when you're counterbanking a large enemy, that's a lot of score lost. That is a lot of score gone to the void. Yeah, is it does it does a doesn't a death cut your your uh, your chain or your bank in half or something like that? Something. I know it's a ton of score losses because whenever I see Kiwi run the game live and he dies during those sections, he's like, ah! <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. Totempachi is kind of like that as too. It's funny. Chain games are really interesting because there are places where you want your chain. If you got to have your chain break somewhere, you always want it to break at the beginning or at the end, but never in the middle. If your chain breaks in the middle, that just is awful. Because the because chains are exponential. They're not linear. So it's not like... So if you get two 300 chains, that is a fraction to one 600 chain. Like a 600 chain is worth, I don't know how much more, like 10 times more or something crazy like that. Whereas three two 300 chains, that's like nothing. So... I'm assuming that's kind of similar in Kets or in uh, Mushimisama, which is like if you're if you die mid counterbank, that's a lot of score loss. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. It maybe it's just me, but it feels like because the scoring in Mushi is so different and odd, the way that it works. Um, it feels like it's similar to Toho, where people play Toho for survival, yeah. but they don't necessarily play Toho for score. I think that was the case until a fellow American named Kiwi came along and decided to play Mushi for score. And ever since he started playing the game and playing it for because he discovered a lot of stuff with auto fires and all kinds of crazy strats. And he's made the scoring of the game seem really interesting. But before that, like, the Japanese players don't really play it all that much. Like, the fact that Kiwi came along and just figured all this stuff out and got world record scores across a lot of the categories, that, that, Kiwi's an impressive player, but usually to do that, you need, like, decades of dedication to a game or you need to be insane like Moglar or something, so... Uh, I think it. I think it's fair to say that it's fairly undeveloped, underdeveloped as a, a score game among the cave library, as opposed to Futari, which is very well developed, but also has its own issues. So, right, uh, yeah, the, the the Mushi games are a little bit cursed in their scoring systems, I guess. Now, as far as the options, are you uh, are you a trace person, a formation person, or are you situational? I am pretty sure Trace is just better, isn't it? Isn't Trace just better than Formation? So, Trace. But I'm also lazy, so I don't have the patience to, like, make sure I get Trace every time. So the game just tells me what Formation... Because the, the way it works is when the Formation item spawns, you have to wait for it to change to the other right. Formation, but that takes forever. And I'm too scared to, like, route where I have to wait for the formation item. I'm too scared to route that way. So I literally do just play whatever the game throws at me. But I'm huh. pretty sure the the trace formation is the better of the two. Interesting. See, and I tend to like the the formation just because of the extra string, screen coverage that you get automatically. 
Uh, now, obviously, once you once you do focus fire, those kind of come in and and focus with you. But for normal, ah, but guess what? Guess what? This will blow your mind. If you do super shot, they stay in that concentrated form with formation. So that's actually a really useful way to know if you're doing super super shot correctly or not. If you do super shot correctly, they will they will form the concentrated formation, uh, which is pretty fun, but um, probably isn't the best in terms of screen coverage and stuff like that. So that's another reason why trace is better because when you're doing super shot, I think it's just it just works better with super shot than the formation does. Huh. But it is really cute when when you do the super shot with formation because it doesn't just stay there; it like dances a little bit, it's like it oh, like kind sure. of pumps pumps along. It's it's pretty cool. I can see that. I mean, I have a soft spot for the formation. Don't get me wrong, but I just think like objectively on paper, trace is better. But I like I said, I just do whatever the game tells me to do. So I play with formation quite a bit because it's like half the game you're using it. What I'm wondering is, now of course, you know, Mushi was a three-button game initially, so you had your your shot, your bomb, and then your full auto for your C button. And of course, the super shot comes from holding down full auto and then tapping the shot button at a specific rhythm uh, in order to. And the way I've been, so I've been practicing this because when I go to Spain to play Mushi Misama for the demonstration. Uh, I was like, they don't have. They obviously don't have a auto fire of the auto fire button. I think they should, but you know, like that's you'd have to like probably drill another hole to put a button or whatever you'd have to do. And so, uh, I've had to confront this issue. Okay, now I've got to try and get super shot just manually, you know, by holding it and tapping it. You have to tap it so fast for your game boy guru. My hand's going to fall off. So I just gave up. So when I play it without the rapid fire, I don't even use super shot because you have to hammer that button. You have to at like either 6 hertz or 12 hertz. And 6 hertz is doable, but 30 minutes, 30 minutes tapping at 6 hertz, your arm's going to fall off. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. So... It kind of does feel a little bit like a, a auto fire only technique, even though you. I've seen Kiwi do it in some of his runs, but he doesn't do it all the time when he's doing it manually, because your hand will fall off. So now, do you know which of the uh, additional auto fire options is supposed to be closest to that? Because in the in the three sixty port and beyond, yes, you also have rapid shot and rapid full auto. Yes. So rapid full auto is like super shot, basically. Okay. It's the super shot button. Um, so the way it works is rapid shot is the C button. Full auto is turboing the A button. And then r- rapid full auto is, I'm pretty sure, turboing the C button. See? And so... I can't remember. I think the easiest way to do it is pairing rapid with full auto. And you hold them together and that'll give you super shot. But I think you can do some fun stuff with that rapid full auto button that Kiwi was doing. And that's there's some type of scoring stuff you pull off with that. But if you want just if you want just straight up super super shot, 
what I do is I've got my full auto. I mean, I've got my rapid shot. That's your C button. So whatever you put your C button on. Then you've got your regular shot button on your shot button. Then you got your bomb. I put my bomb on my thumb, but some people put it on the ring finger. And then the fourth button that I map is the full auto. And so if you hold rapid shot and full auto together and you set full auto to 12 hertz, bam, baby, you have got yourself a super shot. And you can tell you're having a super shot because if you get the formation and then you hold these buttons, uh, it'll go into like that weird dancing concentrated formation. And then you know, okay, we are super sh shotting right now. So that I at least know a bunch about super shot. <laughs> cool. And, and then the, there's some kind of crazy stuff you can do with that fifth button with the rapid full auto. I don't personally use it, but I know Kiwi does or something. So it does stuff, but I'm not entirely sure what. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm pretty sure rapid full auto is what I've been mostly using um, when I've been playing the game on Switch. Um, so maybe that is how Yeah, and that. I don't know. I don't know. I'm pretty sure if you pair that with your A button, you'll still get Super Shot. I would assume so. But I think it has some other properties as well for other things. Huh. I mean, so to, to paint the picture for the listeners out there, when Kiwi was doing his full auto world record runs, he's got like five or six auto fire buttons going or something like he needs a full arcade stick of buttons <laughs> and he was even like mapping buttons within software or some crazy stuff like it it's crazy so there's definitely a lot more to explore with the rapid fire exploits of the game but for the for the homies it's just full auto hold rapid that'll give you super shot <laughs> Nice. Oh, one other point on the rapid shots and the full autos is that it's different. The effects are different for each shot type. So M and S have similar super shots, which are all right. They're kind of okay. I think M. I think M's the worst. It, like it's not really all that good. That's why M is considered like the worst shot type. Well, it's just overall just kind of bad. Uh, it's okay-ish, and I'm actually going to be doing my run in Spain with M just just to be cool like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's super shot is basically not very good. And then S's super shot is pretty good, but it doesn't really do nearly as much point blank damage as W. And W's super shot is incredible, and that is the that is the winner winner chicken dinner in terms of. You're able... It just does everything. So you have great screen coverage. You have great damage output. You can put damage on things, even from a good distance, because of Super Shot. And even if, and so even with, like, the formation stuff, if you're, like, back full screen, but you have the formation, you can, like, blast stuff with your laser still. So it's just such a good ship type when you have Super Shot in the mix. It just makes it the best ship of the game, or best, best shot type of the game by far. So... Yeah, shot type kind of messes up the programming in terms of the ship balance for sure. So if you're a new player and you want to 1cc it, play W and Super Shot. Because you're going to be cruising through a lot of the uh, boss fights easier. You don't have to fight them as longer. You get through the patterns quicker. 
And then, of course, just screen coverage, getting the cancels sooner. You're sweating less bullets, dodging all this crazy stuff. So it's just such a good, strong shot type. Well, don't worry. We've covered Super Shot. We've covered all the good stuff with Muji Misama. So maybe for the people at home, for the audience, before this episode, before I get hit by a meteorite <laughs> with this cursed episode, let's give our final thoughts on what would we say about Mushimi Sama? Where do we rank it in terms of our cave game favorites? And why should people play it? We'll start with Addicted. All right. Thank you, Bob. I would say that... <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I would have to say with Mushimi Sama, it's got enough going for it that makes it interesting. It's not going to be as polished as you would have with Futari or you know even the... Uh, militaristic later cave games such as Ketsui. It's... I wouldn't put it in the S tier of cave stuff, but I would definitely put it in like an A or A+. I I think there's enough meat to keep you coming back and enough variety, especially with different shot types, different modes that you can really get a lot for your money. I think it stands to reason the fact that this game's been ported, what, three times now? I think four. Four times. In PS2, Xbox 360, Steam, and Switch. And it even has a Taito's Choice on the PS2. <coughs> Hell yeah. Or People's Choice. That <laughs> it is definitely worth trying and would be considered maybe one of the better gateways into Cave. <coughs> I... Despite its flaws, I think, in which when we're talking about flaws, aside from your arm falling off from doing auto fire, it <laughs> they are the small the the drawbacks or the small flaws are small enough, and despite its flaws, it it really is an excellent game and one that I feel I probably should have played sooner. There and definitely glad that we were able to spend some time and. Get get to know this game and give it a, a fair shake. Yeah, I mean, all right, I'm, Guru, you're up next. I'm kind of in a same similar boat. Um, I feel like I, I there there's part of me that wishes I would have come to this game sooner, um, and not played Fatari first uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one. As we discussed earlier, I think the original Mushi's much more cohesive aesthetic and and look and feel. I, I think really is one of its one of its strong points, and so having all of that to sort of to sort of bring you into the experience, even if the gameplay may not be as refined as it could be. I feel like there's still a lot to like about it, particularly now with the the Switch and the Steam ports. That there's so much content available. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of of uh, gameplay that you can that you can really sink your teeth into. I think the biggest the biggest knock against the updated ports of the game really is just that. The novice mode is too easy, um, and that 
you really don't get much of an opportunity to to kind of learn the game uh, at a little bit more of an easy pace. Although I will say, maybe Novice Maniac is is uh, a good place to start from that standpoint, just because the original Novice mode is is uh, a cakewalk. Yeah. But, <laughs> but Novice Maniac feels like a, maybe a little bit closer to a, a good Novice mode that sort of doesn't hold your hand and doesn't ease you into it too much, but then also doesn't beat you over the head like like some of these games will. Yeah, I still, I still feel more of a draw to Futari and more of a draw to Ketsui at this point, but I definitely have developed a a major appreciation for the original Mushi, and I do feel like it's something that I'll come back to, particularly as I as I continue to explore Danmaku games and get more experience with the genre and learn more how to play and approach these games more effectively, I think this is a game I could come back to later and um, maybe feel more confident with and feel as though I, I could play better or I could learn the game better as I kind of increase my general overall skill with the Donmaku style. Because where I kind of ended up at the end of the year with the game is that I still felt like I still felt like stage three was a bit of a wall for me. Being able to get through stage three without dying too many times or expending all of my bombs, I, I felt like it was still kind of a problem. And and stage four to me just felt like um, like I wasn't going to make an, any real progress. And I don't know how much of that was me psyching myself out versus uh, a realistic kind of look at, at where I was with my progress, with original mode at least. But yeah, I, 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 really, I really do think that Mushi is a great game, and there's so much to like about it between the, the visual presentation the the interesting gameplay stuff the awesome soundtrack um, multiple awesome soundtracks if you're if you're playing one of the new reports that has uh, you know different versions of it mm-hmm. so there's there's so much to like about it and um, so I guess to sum up even though it's not my favorite cave game I do feel like it's well worth your time to play it and experience it, to try the different modes and see which one uh, which one grabs you and then run with it. Yes, for me, when I think about my favorite cave games and kind of uh, one way I always sort of gauge what my favorites are just in general is not what I like to think that I like or what I think sounds cool to like, but what I actually engage with and what I actually find myself returning to. And I find myself playing original Mushi a lot. It's And it's always a game that when I play it and after I get finished playing it, like I've been practicing for the Spain event, I always think to myself, 
man, I need to play this more. I need to find more reasons to play Mushihime-sama. So at some point, I'm going to have to play the Ultra Mode and beat the Ultra Mode because I've beaten every other mode in the game at this point because of that. But something about it I really connect with. I really love the visual presentation, the colors. It hits this really sweet spot for me where it's bright, it's colorful, it's cute, but it's not too whatever you call it, kawaii or too moe. It pulls itself back from going down that road too much. Uh, the fact that it has all these really cute bugs, but there's still a lot of nice rich detail to them that doesn't feel too cartoonish. I really like that. And then just if you look at the backgrounds of this game, they are absolutely beautiful. And there's so much detail put into these backgrounds. Like there's little walking paths and it's crazy how much work they put into the to the backgrounds of the game because it would have been easy to just put a sky background in like you know how many shmups just throw a sky background in but every stage in Mushim Sam is so distinctive and you're going on on this little journey and then the soundtracks mi mix mixes in so well for example when you go from stage three into stage four and you enter the pond and you see the water and then that music plays night of the stars or whatever it is that is such a it has such a vibe to it. You're like, oh, yeah, every single time. Same thing, like I said before, with like the title screens and the menus. There's something very soothing and peaceful about the game. And very few shmups have that effect on me. Most shmups, you know, they get you hyped up and stuff. But Mushi, there's something very, very easing and calming about it. So I would say of my favorite cave games, it's definitely in the top five. Even though I would absolutely admit on paper Futari is the better shmup, just something about Mushi, maybe because it's a little bit jank, it's a little bit crazy, that I like it as much as I do. The fact that you can kind of throw the boss patterns off in these weird ways and the shot types are unbalanced and kind of crazy, but I absolutely love Mushi Misama. And I do think it is a pretty solid entry into the uh, bullet hell genre because... It goes bullet hell mode on you, there's no doubt about it, but it doesn't go full-on bullet hell. So I think even classic shmup players will find stuff to connect with in Mushi Misama. And it also has a very strong porting history. The PS2 port's a little a little janky because the slowdown and stuff isn't so good, but uh, has a good arrange mode. And then you've got the 360 port, which is really good, and then... The 360 port, again, but on computer, <laughs> the Steam port is really good. And then the three support, 360 port, again, but on the Nintendo Switch, is also really good. And one of the best shmups on the Switch. So, yeah, just cannot get enough of Mushihime-sama. And it, it kind of makes me sad that we'll never see a Mushi 3. But you can't go wrong with playing some Mushi 1. So I was really happy to get the chance to come on the show and talk about it. And... Maybe another game I wouldn't like to talk about twice in a row, but it's my fault, so I can't blame anyone else. But Mushi, I, could, I was like, I could talk about Mushi again, no problem. <laughs> so huh. I, I've been re really excited. I'm really glad you guys covered the game and talked about it and brought me on the show. Thanks, Mark. It was definitely good to have you here and talk about stuff that uh, went way above my head, but I appreciate you talking about it anyways. I mean, there's so much depth to this game that you would normally experience by just playing it for survival. I hope that everyone tries out the different modes and the different shot types to understand the, as you put it, the pain of moving dreadfully slow. 
as you <laughs> yes especially with the uh, w shot type in concentrated fire <laughs> but the, with the power of super shot you don't even need to do concentrated fire that's for that's for suckers you just you don't even concentrate fire you just super shot all the time <laughs> and the world's a happy place there you go okay well there you have it the possibly the last word on Mushihime-sama. Probably not, but it's the last word from us. If you'd like to learn more about Mushihime-sama, please send a self-addressed stamped envelope to... (laughs) (laughs) Or please visit Cave's website at cave.gp.com or whatever it is. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 